This message comes from NPR sponsor Dave's Killer Bread, and they're ready to rock the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread is a leading organic bread for a reason, killer taste, texture, and nutrition. This isn't bread. This is bread amplified. We are told by the record executive, Ross, Janice, I want you guys to take take the chipmunks on the road. We want you to take them. These are the seven cities we want you to go to and make this album a hit in these seven cities. And if you do that, we will give you a big national promotion. We hit the road. We, in fact, make the album a hit in each one of the seven cities. We come back to the record executive. The record executive uh, tells Janice and me, well, uh, we're not actually going to do the national release and the big marketing. I said, well, wait, I said, you told us that if we, he said, if you don't have it in writing, you don't have it. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how a husband and wife team built a billion-dollar brand around three singing chipmunks. If you were to build, say, a pantheon or a Mount Rushmore of Saturday morning cartoons of the 1980s, a statue to Alvin and the Chipmunks would be right there alongside the Smurfs, the Gummy Bears, Inspector Gadget. It was one of NBC's biggest hits, three singing rodents, Alvin, Simon, Theodore, and their exasperated but kind manager-slash-foster-dad, Dave Seville. Has anyone seen my tie? You're wearing it, Dave. Now, all these voices... Don't forget your mittens, Dave! Theodore, Alvin, Simon, Thanks, Dave... Theodore. They were all voiced Socks. by two people. Am I forgetting anything? Me! Hey. Ross Bagdasarian Jr. and his wife, Janice. I'm Theodore. And I'm Alvin and Simon and Dave. All right, gotcha, okay. Do you want us to talk at house speed? <laughs> <laughs> so Ross and Janice didn't just voice the characters. They pretty much ran and run the company that is Alvin and the Chipmunks. The movies, the merch, the TV syndication, the live shows. All of that's brought in billions, billions of dollars for studios and networks and arenas and even quite a bit for Ross and Janice. And that's in part because unlike most other creative people in Hollywood, Ross and Janice own the Chipmunks. They own the intellectual property. And so Chipmunks, Inc. is pretty much a family business run out of Ross and Janice's house near Santa Barbara, California. Now, they didn't actually invent the Chipmunks. The actual inventor was Ross's dad, Ross Sr. I told the witch doctor I was in love with you. Back in 1958, Ross Sr. was a struggling songwriter who was looking for a break. And that break came when he figured out a way to change the pitch of his singing voice. And the result? The Witch Doctor song. So this song became a hit, and Ross soon came up with this concept that it was sung by these anthropomorphic rodents he called the Chipmunks. And all of a sudden, Ross Sr.'s career took off. The Chipmunks became a radio show and then a cartoon on television. 
And for Ross Jr., he watched his dad become famous. A hundred percent. It changed literally overnight, first with Witch Doctor, which was like March 1958. And then, of course, the chipmunks were that November, December 58. So we got a swimming pool. So I was <laughs> I was much more impressed that we had a swimming pool than that my dad was on the Ed Sullivan show doing the Witch Doctor or Dick Clark's uh, American Bandstand or whatever. <laughs> I remember he would always bring my brother and sister and I into his den and play uh, whether it was Witch Doctor or the Chipmunk song or whatever. And we loved uh, when Alvin started talking back to our dad. Uh, we just fell in love with not just the song, but the audacity of that little character. Because we we didn't really talk back to my dad that much. <laughs> so uh, we thought Alvin really had a lot of spunk that we admired. What what was your dad like? Was he was he? I mean, I'm thinking of the guy who wrote the saying and wrote the Witch Doctor. And yeah, was he this impresario? Was he charismatic? Was he silly? Or you know what? He was all of that guy. He was bigger than life. He was sort of the Armenian version of uh, Zorba the Greek. So huh. uh, all five seven of him, but you all. Always thought, and everyone who met him thought that he was six five. He just carried himself that way, but he was funny. He was incredibly creative. He loved music and really thought of himself as a musician. Um, he loved songwriting and and started writing songs uh, when he was sixteen years old, driving a truck in the vineyards of Fresno. Uh, and his first song was called Nuts to You. So <laughs> from nuts came Little Chipmunks. Yeah. So when you were a kid, Ross, did you think that you would be involved in, in the family business? A hundred percent no. You know, uh, growing up, uh, I didn't even want to go to the recording sessions. My dad would say, hey, do you want to come and see how we do this? And what? I go, yeah, no, Pop, uh, I got a big Little League game here, so um, I'm going to not make it to that. But... Growing up, as I started to realize what kind of a career was I heading for, uh, the only thing I was certain of while my dad was still alive was that I wasn't going to be involved with the chipmunks or what my dad had done, not because I didn't love what he had created, but because he, they were such big shoes to fill that I, I didn't want to try and step into that. Hmm. So I, I know, Ross, that um, I think you were 22 or 23 when when your dad died. He was super young, like uh, just just early, his early 50s. Right. What what did he want you to do with your with your life? Well, after my dad passed away, and before he had passed away, he said, "I really want to encourage you to go to law school." And I uh, I just hated that idea. But when he passed away, all of a sudden, you saw the kind of folks coming out of the woodwork that would try and take, whether it was music publishing from the family or uh, wineries and vineyards that he had built up over the years. And I realized that my dad wanted me to go to law school, obviously not to become a lawyer, but basically to have a kind of a mental ma martial arts protection because he always had said, look, there's creating what you do and then there's continuing to own what you do. And, and those are tough things to do at both times unless you know how to protect yourself and, and contracts and so forth. So uh, after he passed away, I immediately enrolled in law school. Uh, so I graduated in, uh, three years later in 75, passed the bar, uh, wasn't going to practice law, but wanted to know that 
with the music publishing and, and the things that I would hope to create later on, I wanted to know how to hold on to them as my dad had done. And did you, I mean, at that point, were you already thinking about, you know, ways to, to revive the chipmunks? Yes. After my dad had passed away, I would go up into his office and just listen to the songs that he had done. I watched the old TV shows that he had done, uh, the Alvin show. And I just thought I didn't want the chipmunks to pass away as suddenly as my dad did. And, and, and I wanted to figure out some way to try and bring them back. So when I met Janice, and she had loved the characters growing up uh-huh. and uh, was one of the shows that her folks let her see. Uh, so I now had a, a, another believer with me. Uh, and I said, I, Jan, I just want to see if we can do this for, you know, just a year to bring, you know, kind of a tribute to my dad. And then and then we'll go and do, all, you know, of course, all the other things that we're interested in doing. Can I just go back for a sec? Because I, I want to ask. Janice about where you were at this point because you were you were like you were an actor in LA right yeah and so how did you you and Ross meet well we met at a health food vegetarian restaurant and I uh, went up to this is in in LA in LA and I uh, saw a friend of mine who was uh, having dinner with Ross who I didn't know and I went up to her to say hello and was introduced to Ross and the following day I got a bouquet of flowers where I was working and the next day I got another bouquet and they were all signed uh, by Ross but I hadn't remembered his name so I didn't know who was sending me these flowers. I made quite the impression as you can <laughs> tell. Yeah, must these, be, must have, yeah. <laughs> these flowers went on for several weeks and finally, he called. He uh, he said, "Hi, uh, Jan. This is Ross." I said, "Ross, thank you for those flowers. They're beautiful. Who are you?" <laughs> and, <laughs> and from then, that, and then he asked me on a date. And it, it took about three years for me to come around. Wow. <laughs> three years, right? And so he took me to his father's office at night, and it was, and I'm we're going up the elevator, and I'm thinking, where where are we going? And I didn't tell anybody I was going out with this guy, and and what are we doing in this building? And then he put on the, uh, we walked into an office, and he put on the uh, old chipmunk shows, and I thought, wow, <laughs> this is interesting. And then he told mm. me he was the son of Ross Bagdasarian. Uh, and I said, oh, my God, that was one of the uh, few sh- few cartoon shows I watched and, and loved them. So then he said, do you think they would be viable today? And I said, I, I would think so. And I had enlisted her on my impossible quest, uh, my little Don Quixote uh, <laughs> fighting, fighting these little windmills to get the chipmunks. Uh, yeah, the chipmunks back. Exactly. Yeah. So, 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 I mean, you just, like, start trying to to pitch people on on this concept? Yeah. Well, first we went to CBS because they had run the old shows, the Alvin mm-hmm. shows. So that seemed like a natural place to go. And and uh, they said, listen, we thought uh, we loved what your dad did. Uh, we thought it was great, but we we, we think history has moved on and and uh, it had its wonderful time. And that's that's really over. So mm-hmm. then we went to the music. Uh, side of things. And I don't know if they had just spoken to the people at CBS, <laughs> but they said, you it's know, that was industry. a wonderful, uh, wonderful <laughs> characters. And your dad had a great success. But uh, we think that's uh, time has passed and, and you guys should move on to something wow. else. You're young and capable and off you go. 
And did this just continue to happen? You would just go to studios and production companies and, and they would just turn you down? This went on Everyone for years. Down. <laughs> for years. And so but why did you stick with it? I mean, if, if you, you know, at that point, you're, I guess you're in your 20s. Yeah. Um, you've got a law degree. You've got all these possibilities. <laughs> you're married at this point. So, so how long did you, you know, keep going out and, and getting rejected? I mean, how long was that period of time? Well, for, first of all, all those uh, no's fueled Ross huh. and, and and actually fueled me as well. So, uh, And I would always say, Janice, write their names down. We're going, <laughs> when we make this big, we're going to, when we see them again, we're going, oh, now you want it? Well, we're not going to give it to you. <laughs> and I, like a fool, would take out my little pad and look at their name tag. Or, Could you spell your last name for me? <laughs> but, um, I mean, really, how did you keep going at it when, when all these people were saying, no, no, no. I mean, weren't? Did you feel dejected? Didn't you just feel like humiliated, or did you? No, honestly, huh. I didn't. I I just felt, oh well, I am going to show them they're wrong. Hmm. I know this is going to work. Janice believes in it. There's two <laughs> of us, for goodness' sakes. Um. So no, I was just more and more uh, set on what, however long this took. Yeah, but I mean, look. <laughs> To be devil's advocate, you can understand <laughs> for a moment. You can understand what why a, a television executive at the time, somebody who, who's trying to find the next big thing and right. who's, who's sort of incentivized to do it, would sort of look at your proposal and say, oh, that's a throwback to the 50s. We're doing like – we're doing really crazy things now. I mean you, you could kind of understand that. You know, Ross taught me the power of tenacity. A guy, he pursued me for three years every <laughs> single day. Yeah. Because, so. because, because I knew we were right. I knew this was the perfect person for me. And, and not to equate Janice with the chipmunks, but, but I, I honestly believe when you really believe in something so clearly, it's so clear for you as, the, as that was for me. I, I didn't care what anybody else said. We were going to make this happen if it took a year or if it took three decades. But why did you believe that it would work? I mean, why? When, <laughs> when all of these experts, I'm just curious, Ross, obviously we know what happened, but when all of these people who were experts in television were yeah. saying, look, this is a, this is old, this is a tired franchise, yeah. like, you know, just enjoy life. And, right. I mean, why did you think they were wrong? Well, two, two, two things. Number one, what we came to realize is that there actually are no experts. You know, nobody really knows. And so I was just willing to put my belief above what other people were telling us. And, and Janice felt the same way. We thought they were good characters. Yeah, I felt, I felt that, uh, you know, in listening to the chipmunk song and the witch doctor and Alvin for president, that there was this relationship with Dave and this chipmunk that kept pushing his buttons. And I believed that relationship. And so did millions of other people. And and he really, in, that, that uh, Dave and Alvin really endeared themselves to us. And I thought if we could get that relationship in these shows, then it could happen again. So what happened? What was the turning point? The, the turning point was a disc jockey in Philadelphia at 3 o'clock in the morning played a Blondie song and sped it up and told his listeners that it was the latest song from this album, Chipmunk Punk. He was being completely <laughs> facetious. What was, the, what was the Blondie song? Uh, call, call Me. me. Yeah. And, he, and he just just sped it up and said it was a chipmunk yeah. version yeah. of Call Me. Just, you know, he was yeah. probably bored. And his uh, switchboard lit up, 
And uh, all these people called wanting to know where they could get the album. And hmm. a record company back east <laughs> found out about this and called us up and said, uh, would you be interested in doing uh, a Chipmunk? We didn't even listen to the end of the sentence. Uh-huh. We said, yes! It was just some random small, was it a small, small record company? Yeah. Uh, they said, would you do a Chipmunk punk album? Would yes. you be interested in a Chipmunk punk album? But uh, we were we were very up for it. And as it turns out, it sold over a million albums overnight. And then the people at CBS and NBC and ABC, they were, you know, all of a sudden they wanted to have lunch. And was it relatively cheap to produce that record? Very inexpensive. I don't like to say cheap. I would say inexpensive. <laughs> wow. So you put that record out. It just sells like crazy. Yeah. And then what? And then television follows? Television it, companies start to call you? Well, right after that, as Janice mentioned, not only were the TV folks who we had gone to much more receptive and now interested, but it also gave us a chance to look at doing uh, more music because obviously it had sold so well. So we were approached to do not only a Christmas album, but also, mm-hmm. uh, and we thought, okay, what would be you know, the the furthest thing away from this album, because we didn't want to do a repeat of that. So um, Urban Cowboy had come out, and we thought, you know what? Let's go to Nashville and record Urban Chipmunk. So we 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 took songs from Kenny Rogers and the whole bunch of folk, Love a Rainy Night, Thank God I'm a Country Boy, all of these different songs. But uh, one of the things that Janice wanted to do in that album was now create some dialogue, some stories. Just some not, personality and not just, you know, Not just song, music. song, song, song. Yeah. And so, that, so I said to Ross, so how do we do this? How did your dad do the voices and uh, the dialogue? And he said, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I was playing Little League. What did I know? <laughs> so yeah. I, I went back to the house and I played his father's tapes and I saw that he talked at half speed. And so I went back and I said, okay, this is what we do. So you're, you guys are recording this, like you're speaking very yes. clearly and slowly. So then when you speed up the tape, it sounds like, like the chipmunks. Right. Well, it sounds, it's the same speed as we speak, but it's at a higher pitch. Right. Just a, just a, like a logistical question. When yeah. you started to do the voices for the characters, how did you just give me a sense, like give me a little bit of taste of obviously everyone listening knows you are Dave Ross. It's yeah. obvious. <laughs> but, 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 but like how do you record Alvin? Like just give me a line of, of how you would record Alvin. Well, I, I, I will do that, but I want to also say that, um, Janice was just wonderful as Theodore right from the beginning, and I was still so tied to what my dad had done, which was very clear. And when my dad did Alvin, it was, hello, Dave, how are you doing today? Very stilted, and it didn't feel real. Uh So Janice uh, would say, Ross, you know what? Don't try and do an impersonation of your dad, either as David Seville or as Alvin or Simon. You know, loosen him up, make it a little bit more your own. And so now, after all of these years, um, I've obviously gotten better. And so now Alvin is uh, more fluid for me. And even though I have to talk more slowly, 
Dave, listen, okay, I know you're going to continue to talk about blah, 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 whatever. All right, Santa, I'd like a word with you and your elves. And, and then, then, Guy, I would say, Ross, slower. Right, right. <laughs> slower. Dave, I remember what you said the last time, so could I please just leave? Dave, can I talk to you a minute? There's nothing more to say, Alvin. Are you still mad at me, Dave? No, so I'm just very So how did television actually then end up happening? Because it happened, I guess, in, in 1983, the, the Chipmunks cartoon comes back on TV. Right, but before that guy, um, in 1981, Janice and I had been taking around a Christmas uh, idea, Christmas special, uh, from probably around 78 or so. So after Chipmunk Punk comes out and does so well, and then Urban Chipmunk, NBC said to us, hey, um... I know we told you we thought that was a terrible idea and we didn't like the Chipmunks, but um, we now think with those two uh, platinum albums, maybe that Christmas uh, special is a good idea. Wow! Did did you did any executives that had previously rejected you? Did you end up meeting with them and 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 having like were they begging you to come back? Yes, and I'm not nice. going to give you names, but <laughs> many of those people that were on our list. Yeah, I nice. did pull out my old list. So, so when they approached you and they said, we want to do a Christmas special, did you have a concept of, of what the cartoon would look like, how it would be animated? And did you already have that laid out or did you have no. to kind of figure that out? We didn't even, we had never uh, written anything before. And, and then when they, they said, so who do you see writing it? Ross said, uh, we're going to write it. And I looked at him across the room I glared at him like what are you saying and uh, and again because out of necessity we wrote it and then no we didn't have a look we didn't have we the voices we still weren't experts uh, at and yeah. How did you even know what to do? I mean, obviously, you, you know, you're both super smart and talented, but I mean, you're creating an animation studio yeah. overnight. You're you're standing up an animation studio, <laughs> which, by the way, in 1983 was very expensive because it's still hand-drawn stuff, right? Right, exactly. Well, Ross and I have done everything. Everything we've um, ventured into, we've known nothing about. So it's the— it's, <laughs> We start from stupid. <laughs> we start from stupid. It's the hardest way and the best way to learn. And you just go step by step. Okay, we need to uh, create characters. Okay, we need to know what this world looks like. And uh, we were really very fortunate because uh, some of the great animators from Warner Brothers, um, including Chuck Jones and Phil Monroe and Virgil Ross and these guys who had done the greatest Bugs Bunny cartoons in the 40s and 50s, were available and they weren't being wow. used and Janice and I hired all of them hey, to make uh, the, the Christmas special a Chipmunk Christmas. Dashing through the stores on a chipmunk skating board Through the crowd we play Shopping all the way Stocking come with care Soon Santa will be here What fun it is to shop all day when David's nowhere near Oh Christmas time 
after that Christmas special on NBC, um, clearly it was a success because then NBC cut a deal with you. What was that first deal? Was it was it a a one one season of of Alvin the Chipmunks that they they committed to? Yeah, it was always that that sort of wonderful first uh, first series deal. So it was it could be as long as five years, but it was one year at a time and. Um, it, we got very little money for it. Back in those days, it was like $210,000 for a half hour of shows. So there wasn't And that was much... supposed to cover all your costs? Oh, absolutely. So, and we oh, were wow. used... And we were putting our own money into it. Right. Always putting our oh, own yeah. money Oh, we yeah. We were used to going into our own pocket. Yeah. Okay, so the show uh, launches in in 1983. This was on this was on Saturday mornings, of course. That's right. And we were against Bugs Bunny on ABC and CBS, who didn't want us. We had gone to them first huh. because they said, "Why do we need the Chipmunks? We've got Charlie Brown and Snoopy." Yeah. Um, and and we said, "Well, you know, we could be. You know, you could have two. You could have <laughs> Snoopy." And anyway, so we turned out to be uh, against poor Charlie Brown and Snoopy, and and the Chipmunk. Uh, series was a giant hit right from the beginning. Uh, I remember. So, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you think about, um, I mean, just as a consumer, right, you're thinking about like Mickey Mouse and Alvin and Bugs Bunny and the Peanuts gang, and they're all great. Like, we love them all. We have these warm feelings about them. But actually... From the perspective of the of the creators of these of these characters, like you, these are competitors, right? Yeah. Well, well, they uh, yeah, go yeah. ahead, Jen. No, I, I guess I, I never see them as competitors. Um, you didn't like want to just crush Mickey? No, I didn't right. want to crush him. I <laughs> wanted right, okay. to put my arms around him. And, All right. okay. and we we, All are, right. we yeah we honestly always felt it was like our conversation with CBS when they said, well, we've already got you know, Snoopy and Charlie Brown. Mm -hmm. We always thought that good shows or good characters can coexist. We didn't mm. feel like we needed to go to war with anybody. We just wanted to create something that was unique to us. But, Guy, to be honest, you know, if, if the uh, executive says in a rude way, why do I need you? Mm -hmm. Yes, then we want to crush the executive. <laughs> yeah, you want to crush But we don't want right, to crush... Yeah. You know, Snoopy, <laughs> we want to crush the executive. <laughs> In just a moment, a deal gone bad that put the chipmunks on life support and how Ross and Janice revived the franchise. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, committed to protecting healthcare workers globally. 3M employee Chris knows that healthcare workers, like his daughter, may need to get up close to provide patient care. He's working hard to direct high performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots so she and nurses like her can be protected while caring for their patients. Hear their story at 3M.com/improvinglives. 3M Science, Applied to Life. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. From birthday parties to little league after game hangouts, everyone's been to McDonald's. It's more than just a place to get tasty, affordable food. It's a place where friends and families from the community come together. And because the majority of restaurants are run by independent franchisees, McDonald's has deep roots in communities. Show support for your community the next time you walk into a local McDonald's. I'm loving it. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 1985, and Ross and Janice get through the first season of Alvin and the Chipmunks for NBC. And even though the show is reaching huge audiences, Ross and Janice aren't making a whole lot of money at this point. Remember, the deal they signed with NBC was for $200,000 for the whole season. But what they did have was something much more valuable, the rights to the chipmunks. I mean, you guys own everything. Yeah. You own the, you own the master recordings, you own the animations, you own the, the characters. H- how is it possible that NBC didn't say, hey, if you want to deal with us, you, you know, we own the rights to this thing and, and all the licensing? Well, you know, because my dad had not only, as you mentioned, set that up, he was uh, the first songwriter who not only owned the publishing, uh, but also the master recordings. And and that's what, uh, interestingly, when we met Barry Gordy years later, he said, you know, I learned a very valuable thing. When I was writing songs, I decided to found Motown uh, because I wanted to own the master recordings the way your dad did. So uh, it it was, my dad was really, uh, not only really this great mix of creativity, but also very, really smart about business. And and so um, I knew that, as my dad had mentioned, there was creating Mm. wonderful product, but then there was holding on to the rights to that same thing. But, But I mean, NBC said, we will make this into a cartoon for you. And you guys had been pitching this for at that point six years. (laughs) I mean, if NBC would have said to you, but these are our terms, I mean, how? Well, we we, just walked away? We would have because what we said is, look, we'll produce it. We'll make sure we get the financing together. We'll get a license fee from you. We brought in Kellogg's. So Kellogg's was our sponsor. And Janice and I wrote the shows and then we produced it. And after the first season, they came to Janice and I, they said, okay, we'd like to expand it. Now we want you guys to do an hour, not a half an hour. And hmm. uh, and we we just said, we, we can't even make a half hour we're proud of. So we, and we can't work any longer unless you make more than seven days in the week. So we're going to turn it down. And she said, no, Janice, nobody turns down more shows. <laughs> <laughs> but we did. So... So you are um, you're making these shows for NBC. You're obviously just not making any real money from from the shows because it's going to pay the production costs. But you are getting all this visibility. So, but you're also running a business. The chip. I mean, at what point did you guys sit down and say, you know what, this is a business. Like, let's think about how to make this into something really, really big. What was the 
what what was it that you started to think about? You know, Guy, we were just sitting at home all the time. So we didn't, and you see the numbers, you see the ratings, but they don't really translate into people. You know, you can imagine, but you, you just don't get it. Back in and those days, Guy, we were getting like 40% of the audience was like watching. Like 20 million a, a week or 15 to 20 wow. million a week. So. Finally, we got an invitation. We did a live show, and it was at Madison Square Garden. You just had people dress up in chipmunks. Yeah, we did the voices and did design the costumes and got a story together. And we didn't have time to tour it, but we go to Madison Square Garden. And when we went to the box office, the guy said, well, I, I didn't know you were coming. I sold your tickets. It was sold out. <laughs> oh, and, you had come to, 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 to see the show. Yeah, right. to see the show. Yes. And he's and uh, I said, but we are we are the chip. <laughs> anyway, he let us sit in the aisle, and for the first time, we saw fans. We saw kids waving chipmunk banners and screaming, and the place was filled. Wow. And it was such a moment for us that we'll never forget. It was like, oh my gosh, there are there are people, <laughs> there are kids. <laughs> they they like the show. They like the characters. So, I mean, your business really became the chipmunks. I mean, it was it was the television show on NBC. It was records. It was merchandising, live shows, and and I guess like syndication, right? Yeah. And this is one of the funny business stories, and I I found it interesting only only because later on it turned out to be such a windfall that we did not know about. But they said, look. Um, What's going to happen is that CBS Viacom is going to run your dad's old shows, The Alvin Show, against us because now that you're bringing the chipmunks back so successfully with the albums and the Christmas special and now the new series, you have to get Viacom to not do it on Saturday morning and we want you to offer them the syndication rights for the new series if they'll just not run up against us. And so Janice and I, not knowing the value of syndication, went to Viacom, CBS, and said, okay, if you just won't run against our new shows on NBC, we'll give you the syndication rights to our new series. And they, uh, very full of themselves, said, "Uh, no, we're not going to do that deal. And then a couple years later, we sold those rights for $25 million. We found out it was worth something. Wow. And that's and that was where the money was. Which we did not know. Yeah, which we were, we were going to give away. Yeah. <laughs> and was that syndication? I mean, so the syndication rights were yours. You didn't have yeah. to share that with NBC. No, not at all. NBC didn't get a piece at all. So $25 million is a tremendous amount of money now, but, but in 1985, yeah. even more money. I mean, what did that mean? Did that... I mean, I think anybody listening would just assume that that was it. You guys were set for life. Yeah. Well, first of all, it was very exciting, and 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 it was just a number. I was I was always a kid. Even when I was watching the, the you know the prices right as a <laughs> six year old, I knew what the dishwasher would go for, or the and my mom would always say, "How do you know this? You've not bought dishwashers and things." But I but I always had a sense of what a price for something was going to be. So I had just set that price, and and I didn't change it until we got it. Um, and Janice and I um, so wanted to 
make something we were really proud of, not just something that was successful, because the TV show was obviously tremendously successful, but we were never able to give it the kind of quality that we had hoped to do. So yes, you would think we would be set, but because we always wanted to do something we'd also be proud of, uh, we took most of that money and made an animated feature, The Chipmunk Adventure, in, in that, which came out in 87. And, and that movie did pretty well, right? It, it, it did well, but we didn't, at least in that initial time, we didn't get our money back back in those days because unfortunately we uh, signed on with a distributor that uh, was going to put – X number of dollars into marketing and distribute. We were uh, they spent less than nine hundred thousand marketing the the movie and, and including the prints and advertising. So um, it, it it did it did okay, but it did not remotely get us our money back until many DVD sales later. Ross wrote a little article on that uh, experience uh, making the movie called "The Agony and the Agony." <laughs> As it was hard to find a bright spot in that yeah, one. Right. Here's what I'm curious about, because the show airs on NBC and and you are doing original uh, new episodes until 1990. And then I guess it's in syndication. Um, and then you guys decide to move on. You 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 basically leave NBC and cut a deal with Universal to bring the show back. So what? What what was that about? So one of the things that they wanted to do was create their own Mickey Mouse. And, and uh, they had had Woody Woodpecker for years, but Woody didn't have uh, the sort of resonance for generations the way Alvin did and certainly didn't the way Mickey Mouse did. And they had seen that when we had gone head-to-head, whether it was with Mickey Mouse in an album or a TV show or what have you, that uh, the Chipmunks not only held their own but 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 did very very well and usually came out on top. So Universal loved that. Gee, that Alvin could be our Mickey Mouse, and so the idea then was uh, they were going to create a an animation unit for us, and Janice and I were going to run that. And we would, of course, not only do more more chipmunk stuff, but a, a lot of other things that we had showed them that we could do. Wow. Yeah. No, we were going to be in their theme parks, and, and, and that part actually did happen. But uh, it was going to be this whole smorgasbord of opportunity. And so for Janice and for me, that was like, oh my gosh, this sounds fantastic. Yeah. Did you have to give up some of your ownership for, for that kind of deal? Uh, they, they bought a 25% share at that point in time. And and uh, um, and, that, and that for the opportunity, um, for what felt like a really exciting opportunity to grow the business in a much larger way, felt like a great thing. Did the the money was going to help you scale? Yeah, yeah, and they were going to be also putting money into development and production of all of these different things. And then shortly after we signed that deal, um, all the folks who wanted to do that were gone. What do you mean they're gone? They all left, and so now you are. <laughs> oh, no! yeah, we wound up in a place that. Um, wasn't the same as we thought it was when we came in. So what do you mean? Like all the all the people who signed the deal with you, Universal, were gone, but you still had this deal with Universal. I mean, they would still have the commitments to. I mean, I guess presumably to make movies and to do all kinds of stuff. So, 
why wouldn't you just do it? Yeah, well, we certainly wanted to do it, but you'd <laughs> ask, you'd have to ask them why you why they didn't wind up doing much of it. You know, somebody new comes in and they have a different vision. Yeah, so those were not our happy years, and we wound up leaving that. <laughs> Sorry, but what I don't understand is. What happened? Did they stop answering your calls because you were presumably working on ideas and just were you pitching it and they were saying no or were, were they just ignoring you? What was it was a combi- was the dynamic? Yeah, no, it was a combination of it started out very excited and mm. then uh, as some of the folks who had brought us in, you know, would leave, um, then it'd be harder to get through to them. Then it would become no return calls. And, and uh, yeah, it was just you felt very much like the orphan child that uh, that was brought in to be, uh, you know, the favorite son. And then all of huh. a sudden you you aren't. So, so did Alvin and the Chipmunks basically drop off the map at that point? Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. And, and, and so that's why we said to them, uh, listen, we really – we want to do this, that, and the other. We've got a lot of opportunity, if not here at Universal. There's all kinds of interest outside, so we can do – uh, folks in Japan want to put chipmunk stores together. Uh, folks in Europe want us to make more serious. So we'll just do all of those things. And you, they said? And they said, uh, no, no, uh, we can't. We don't want to have uh, too many cooks in the kitchen. And I said, there's <laughs> no cook in the kitchen. So there's not a pot, not a pan. There's nobody. There's no cooks here. So you guys were just hanging around, pulling your hair out, trying to get things off the ground and nothing? Yeah, it wasn't at all the kind of opportunity mm. that we had hoped for. And, and finally, uh, in 2000, end of 2001, we were able to uh, go our separate way. And, and You sued them to, to get back your company. Yeah, we, we, we had to. You know, you, you unfortunately, um, you have to protect your characters. And, mm. and sometimes um, you try— When you've exhausted every other—you know, because you don't want to go into this. I'm t- telling everybody, you don't want to go into this until you've exhausted all other options, and you're up against the wall. But once you're there, um, you just have to be committed to that, and we always and we were. stand. We we do we really do stand very united on that yeah. front. But does it does it? I mean, it's got to eat at you. It's like it's got to be something that you just can't get out of your head. That must affect your sleep and just your thought process, and it just must become all consuming. Yeah, and you don't understand why. And what we've realized is that logic does not play uh, much that's of a right. part in any of it, uh, and that's the thing that's so strange to us because it's like, okay, hold on a minute. You have no interest in this. We are dedicating our entire lives to it. We should be able to find a way to separate this out and go on our merry way. And And, and I tend to try to put something in a different perspective. I say to Ross, this is such a miserable experience that Mm. let's get something out of it. Let's make, you know, this is, this is sort of fascinating. I didn't find it fascinating <laughs> personally, well, I, I but did. Janice always does. But I no, I, I I have to, I have to put it in a different category than miserable, and so I think, okay, well, I'm going to learn what this process is like, and how do I make this as good as I can make it? That's a very healthy approach to lawsuits, I have to say. I'm, I'm inspired. <laughs> I'm inspired. I'm right. I'm just wondering though. I mean, that uh, from what from what what I've read the. It was only settled really in 2004. So 
from that 2000 to 2004 period, were you basically in like suspended limbo? Like, no, 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 because no, because 2001 was really the end of it. The 2004 part was just that's when the last payment that we had to right. make to them was actually done to get our company back. Right. So, so when when now they, now 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 it was guy. Now it was about how do we resurrect the franchise again after it basically fell off the map. Right. Yeah, went into hibernation. Right. How, how much did you have to pay them to buy back your ownership? Uh, $2.5 million for their- So that's nothing because right. they paid you guys a lot more, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay, so you guys get out of that deal and then you're free. And I guess it was at, at this point that you signed this multi-movie deal with Fox, right? Yeah. Right. But by then, the chipmunks had been kind of like off the radar for lots of years. So, I mean, did that affect, you know, your ability to call the shots in that negotiation? Well, you know, not totally, although, you know, you don't ever necessarily get the kind of deal that you want to have. But we were very clear that, you know, we would, as we have always been, be involved in every aspect. and, and And we say, you know, right from the start, listen, we are very proprietary. If you don't want to work with people like this... Please, you know, don't because it will get uh, you like, know oh, from from the outset. You'll say to from people, the outset oh, sure. always. This is what we're like, and yes. this yes. could be a pain in your ass. Right. We well, you know. yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I don't think we are. I think we're like very reasonable and and yeah, protective yeah. of the characters. No, I mean, if we were a pain in the ass, I would say so. But I, I, <laughs> I think, um, but we're we're protective of the characters. So, is it three movies you you made with Fox now? Yeah. And I noticed, I, I think I think it's in the the first one uh, where the villain is this record executive, yeah. <laughs> it's like chin beard goatee. I think David Cross. David Cross. And is that is that uh, it's, it's, is that like a kind of a, a an unsubtle uh, you know uh, representation <laughs> of your own experiences in this is in this industry? Well, I'll well, I'll tell you one of the stories uh, you know with our music situation was that um, in in 1982. We are with a record company, and I won't go into the specifics of who or, you know, we're going to protect the guilty here. Nah, but, feel free. Yeah. Feel free to just, just spill, <laughs> spill your guts. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're, we're recording, and the album comes out, and we are told by the record executive, Ross Janice, I want you guys to take, take the chipmunks on the road. These are the seven... Cities we want you to go to, travel across the country to these seven cities and make this album a hit in these seven cities. And if you do that, we will give you a big national promotion. Hmm. Great. Okay. We hit the road. And I won't get into all of the crazy stuff that happens, but in any event, at the end of the the tour, we in fact make the album a hit in each one of the seven cities. We come back to the record executive so excited after a pretty bruising couple of weeks. And um, but was that all it was? Yeah, couple felt weeks. like twelve years. <laughs> um, in any event, we're all excited and want to now talk about the national plans that they're going to do. And uh, this is a quote, and it's it, it, so it explains why David Cross is, as uh, Ian is is that character. So the record executive uh, tells Janice and me, well, uh, we're not actually going to do the national uh, release and the big marketing. I said, well, wait, wait. I said, you told us that if we w-. He said, 
If you don't have it in writing, you don't have it. Wow. So that was a brutal wow. lesson. <laughs> yeah, we've learned a lot of lessons over the four decades we've been doing this. Full of lessons. <laughs> you These movies that Fox made— Killed it. They did extremely yeah. well, right? I, I guess it, I guess they oh, generated yeah. a, a, almost a billion dollars. Well, over in a revenue, bi- no, over no, a billion. Uh, yeah, they they uh, their box office is about a billion three hundred million. Wow! And if you include the DVD sales, it's over two billion dollars wow. in revenue. Well, I'm one of those DVD buyers. <laughs> thank me. You can you can send me a a, a thank you card right here on, on here. So well, unfortunately, um, Fox will send you the thank you yeah, card because right. we get well, about a, two cents per exactly, DVD. Exactly. Like you get about yeah. two. You yeah. know, you get a tiny cut of that yeah. one point three billion. Yeah. So inevitably, it's going to lead to some kind of clash. It seems like it's just the way these deals are set up. It's like if all of a sudden it goes well beyond anybody's expectations. Yeah. They're delighted, but you guys get screwed. Well, the economics of it wouldn't have been the frustration for us because once when we make a deal, yeah, we we, we, we live by the deal. So that isn't the frustration for us. The frustration for us is wanting to tell a certain kind of story with uh, reflecting certain kinds of scenes and 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 dialogue and so forth for the characters that we have spent four decades with that's that's honestly where the where the uh, issue would be not the how the economics break down I know that you guys filed a lawsuit against Fox um, because of some of this frustration I know you can't talk about all the details of it because it, it was settled but I mean once you you know you you have legal action against this company that essentially you work with and then you settle it, you still have to work with them after. I mean, there right. th- th- there there must be some bad blood. So how does that? How do you interact with with folks at Fox? Is it like perfectly cordial and normal? Yeah, it, everybody it, puts on their big boy shorts and gets to work. You know, we have occasionally on the show interviewed. Um, husband and wife teams who have built amazing businesses. Kate and Andy Spade, sure. Melissa and Doug, sure. you know, of Melissa and Doug, um, and you guys. And I'm always really impressed when when I talk to people who've been married for 37 years, created <laughs> an incredible business, and you obviously clearly like not only love each other, but you really respect each other's judgment, and and you've carved out different roles for yourself. What's how is it just like serendipitous that it works, or do you do you actually no, there's actually a, there, there's actually a really simple approach that we have, and 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 this was right from the beginning because of our respect for one another. Um, if Janice had a different point of view and she felt more strongly about it than I did, then I would defer to her. If conversely I had a stronger feeling about it than she did, she would defer to me. But right now, because she's writing the shows and directing them and designing them and so forth. She really is the driving force of the show. And I'm thrilled, um, you know, to play a part with Alvin and Simon and, and Dave. And he, and he gets frustrated with me when I wake him up at two in the morning and say, Ross, <laughs> Ross, I, I think you could do line 27 better. No, think- <laughs> not now. <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, we do respect each other. We work really well together. And I've thought about that too, about husbands and wives. And I, I, I think that it either works, and I could be wrong about this, but I think it either works or it doesn't work. Mm. If a couple is committed to you know, going into therapy and really working on their communications, maybe two people that wouldn't normally be able to work together could work it out. But, but we, we just naturally work very, very well together. I mean, you you guys scaled this concept in a way that would probably be unimaginable to your dad. I mean, he 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 obviously he did well. He made lots of money off of uh-huh. Alvin and the Chipmunks and was able to build a great life for his family. But you guys took it to a stratospheric level, a completely different level, out of really out of the ashes of this <laughs> this concept. I mean, what what do you think he would have made of? Of, of Alvin and the Chipmunks today and what it's become. Well, first of all, he would be so proud, but 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 also because my dad had a very limited um, attention span on things, I'm sure he would say, what the hell are you guys doing 40 years later? <laughs> but I also have to tell you this serendipitous story. We were, in the 80s, we would have to drive down. We had finally moved to Santa Barbara and we would drive down to LA to do pickup lines when because the show was going to be on two days later and we'd do our whoa oof oof and, and whatever else we had to fill in for the story and we drove back it was probably three o'clock in the morning and I just you know automatically turn on the TV to just unwind and Ross said, oh, my God, my dad, I just can't imagine. Because the show wasn't coming out the way we wanted. And Ross said, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine what my dad is thinking. And I said, no, no, no. Your dad would be very proud at how hard we're working, how, how much we're trying. And on the television was his father on the, what is it, it's the called, greatest the, show it, on it's, earth? Uh, yeah, it's a Cecil B. DeMille, greatest show on earth. And my dad is in the audience applauding. Wow. And we looked at the tele... I couldn't believe it. And we started to cry. <laughs> but that was that was serendipitous, I, I have to say. Janice Carmen and Ross Bagdasarian are the duo behind Alvin and the Chipmunks. By the way, the Chipmunks were actually named after executives of the original record label. Alvin Bennett, Simon Waroniker, and Theodore Keep were the chief executives of Liberty Records in 1958. Do do people ever call you Dave? You know what? Sometimes, (laughs) Sometimes they do. Or they'll say, you know... You sound so much like that David Seville character. Did anyone yeah. ever tell you that? <laughs> and then, and then you gotta do it, right? <laughs> okay. Well, and hopefully, I'm not going to burn the mic up here doing this. But Alvin. <laughs> <laughs> And please stick around because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. But first, a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, thinkaboutyoureyes.com. So much of what kids learn come through their eyes. Take care of them by visiting an eye doctor yearly. Find one at thinkaboutyoureyes.com. Hey, thanks for sticking around because it's time now for How You Built That. And today's story comes from Daniel Webster Clark of Chicago. 
And about a year ago, Daniel and three friends from business school were sitting around on a Friday night getting ready to go out, and one of them asked, what are you going to wear? And the three guys in the group were sort of lamenting the fact that it kind of felt like our options were to pick among the standard set of khakis and jeans and which button down you're going with. And that was kind of the extent of, uh, of the creativity that we had at our, at our fingertips. As the great Morrissey once sang, I would go out tonight, but I haven't got a stitch to wear. That's the point at which Elaine said, it's funny that you guys feel like you're so limited here. You know, I got a new romper or I got, you know, a new piece to add to my collection. You know, it's a real shame that you guys don't have those in your wardrobe. And at that moment, the guys in the room were like, uh, excuse me, a romper? And Elaine's like, yeah, you know, it's this one-piece outfit. Very lightweight, fun colors. And then she goes into full romper pitch mode, and she says, Well, hey, actually, I have a ton of rompers in my closet, and I can wear them anywhere I want. I can wear them to the office on a Friday. I can wear them to the beach. And so right then, before they even went out that night, Elaine, Daniel, and two other friends started to ask each other, could this be a thing? Could there be a market for rompers? just for guys. But essentially someone said a lot of guys, you know, wouldn't necessarily want to wear that. And then someone in the group said, oh, I'd call it, you know, romp him instead of a romp her. And in case you missed that, someone said I'd call it a romp him, like R-O-M-P-H-I-M. And we sort of had a moment of a stupid laugh, like, haha, okay, that's kind of a dumb pun, but you know, whatever. And then we stopped and said, well, actually, that is kind of catchy and, and could get people talking, and let's go ahead and see if these things exist. And surprise, surprise, these things did not exist. I mean, maybe you could see them on, like, a high-fashion runway, but not for the average guy. So one thing led to another. Daniel and his business school friends made some sketches, and then they found a factory in Chicago to make a prototype. The simplest way to describe it is if you took your a button-down T-shirt and a, a pair of khaki shorts and kind of sewed them together. And just like rompers for women, the romp him has fun colors and interesting prints. And once they got all of the prototypes, Daniel and his partners started to wear the rompers around town including for a brunch date with his girlfriend and her parents. And you would see people on both sides of the table sort of tapping their friend on the shoulder, turning heads to watch as, you know, I just walked through the restaurant in my romper with my girlfriend's parents laughing at the spectacle. So I can definitely attest that uh, there are some uh, head-turning elements to it. So this past May, just before they graduated business school, Daniel, Elaine, and their two other partners launched a Kickstarter campaign that raised $350,000. It also got them lots of love, but as you might imagine, some haters too. You know, maybe 50% of people hate it or think it's childish or looks like pajamas or would never wear it, but 50% love it. And if you want to find out more about Romp Him, check out our Facebook page. Just search How I Built This on Facebook. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you want to write us, our email address is hibt at npr.org. You can send us a tweet. It's at How I Built This. And please do subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our show was produced this week by Ramtin Arablui, who also composed the music. Thanks also to Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpur, Claire Breen, Lawrence Wu, and Jeff Rogers. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR.
How do we reinvent ourselves? And what's the secret to living longer? I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Each week on NPR's TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey with TED speakers to seek a deeper understanding of the world and to figure out new ways to think and create. Listen now.